Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all make request of joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to gather here this day with fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fellowship we share in the gospel of Christ because of Christ, our Savior. As we open your word this morning, may you give us clarity of thought, and may your spirit provide us each and all discernment to understand the truth is before us as we will began our study of this epistle. And Lord, may we clearly see the truth that Paul conveys as Christ, as your glory, as your uh, purpose of redemption is being revealed through the precious word of God. May we rejoice in, in understanding who Christ gives unto us, as you have made him to be. And may we rejoice in the truth of this salvation in which you have made us partakers. And Father, may we grow in the knowledge and faith our blessed Savior. And we pray this morning as we often do, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Miss As is my normal practice to do as we enter into a new study of any epistle, or any book of the Bible, that is, any, any study of scripture, or a book we are entering into a study of him. I normally will provide, as we will this morning, uh, you with an overview of Paul's letter to the believers at Philippi. And in providing you an overview of the book, I also like to point out each and every time the manner in which any particular book fits into the big picture of Scripture. Again, we must remember as we enter any book of Scripture, any epistle, any book of even Old Testament, that every single book that has been given to us in God's Word has a place, has a purpose within the big picture of Scripture. And so again, it's, our, it's important that we recognize that we are to approach Scripture from the macro to micro, meaning that we are viewing its broad theme and scope and then narrow it down to every book, to every chapter, to every verse, to every word, to every division that is provided within Scripture, that we have a clear understanding of the purpose this book has been written. And that's important for many reasons. First and foremost, because God authored this book, and it's not, we have no right, no man has any right to repurpose scripture. So we have no right to make it subjectively what we want it, say what we want it to say. And also, it's important that it guards us against great error and heresy, so that we're not subjectively approaching scripture, and not only missing the intended purpose by which, for which the scriptures were given to us, but also that we guard against a, a misappropriating or a mis 
misrepresenting, uh, misunderstanding, and therefore uh, misusing the word of God within our lives, even personally speaking. And so the big picture of scripture I've shared with you many times, and every time we enter into a new study, I, I give you these truths. The big picture of scripture primarily consists of three truths, and that first is the primary personal scripture of all scripture is Jesus Christ. And so Christ is the central figure to the entirety of God's word, and you must always keep that before you. Second, the primary theme of all of scripture is God's eternal redemptive purpose in Jesus Christ. So God's purpose is in Christ, this redemptive work that God has done in Christ. And then third, the primary purpose of all Scripture is the revelation of God's glory. God does all things for his own glory. All things are unto the glory of God, no matter what it is. And so again, as we approach any book of Scripture, we want to see how this fits in. Now, I want to point your attention to something that we did not read this morning. We're going to look at this in a few moments. But in Philippians chapter 2, there is a passage, specifically verses 5 through 11, which are referred to as the Carmen Christi, or hymn to Christ. And in this particular portion of the letter, Paul points out, and you're going to see and appreciate this in a few moments, I think a little more so as we just begin to understand the theme of this book. But Paul points out the fact that Christ came as a man, like unto sinful flesh, without being sinful flesh. He took on flesh, as is our flesh, without sin. And of course, he humbled himself, being equal with God. He is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God. He is the creator of all things, as John 1, Romans 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, all explain to us Christ is the creator. And so we see that he humbled himself, being equal with God, and, and yet humbled himself not only to become flesh, but even unto death. But yet, then the scripture says that God had highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So God took, Christ came, willingly subjected himself to the pain, to the suffering, to the humiliation of flesh, and then humbled himself even unto a sacrificial substitutionary death. And God the Father has exalted him in the flesh, in glorified flesh. Let us understand this, and we'll deal with this when we get to this portion of Scripture in the next three years, whenever it is. And when we get to this portion of Scripture in chapter 2, we will deal with this at this time. But let us understand, Jesus has always been exalted. He's always been the Son of God. So how is it that God has exalted him? In the glorified flesh that he is now in, God has exalted him. He's always been the Word. He is the Creator. He's always been. And so we find that in the glorified flesh, he died, he came in flesh, he died in flesh, he rose again in a glorified flesh, and has been exalted in that glorified, glorified flesh, and given a name which is above every name. And so God has exalted him. That being said, we understand that the primary person is Jesus Christ, the primary theme is the redemptive purpose of God, and the primary purpose is the revelation of God's glory. And I wanted to say this, but we find in other passages, you find all three of those in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You find Christ being emphasized, you find redemption present, and you find it all assigned to the glory of God the Father. And so here's where this fits in, in revealing God's glory through redemption in Jesus Christ in the person of Christ. But we're going to see exactly more so, we're going to kind of hone in some on this theme in just a moment. So Philippians certainly has its place in this big picture, which we will expound upon as we progress in this overview of the epistle this morning. Let's begin, first of all, looking at the author, considering, considering the author of the epistle to the church of Philippi. In verse 1, in the beginning of the verse, we find Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Now, not only does the opening statement 
explain this to us, but also the very first word of this letter identifies the author of this epistle, Paul. Now Paul's introduction to the letter, or in the letter, to the church at Philippi, is one in which he simply identifies himself and Timothy as the servants of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul begins his letters in, in very similar manners within certain letters or epistles, but not all the same within all the epistles. And so in this particular one, he doesn't mention that he's an apostle. He doesn't even mention that he's imprisoned at this point, at this point. But yet, he says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. And this is important because we need to recognize first, Paul included Timothy, notice, in his greeting to the church. Now, we know Timothy is not a co-writer here. There's no evidence at all that Timothy wrote any scripture. He was, of course, an elder, a bishop, a pastor, and we understand that, but he was not a writer of scripture. But yet, Paul includes him in his greeting to the church at Philippi, and this is important as well. As an apostle, we see that Paul includes Timothy not as a co-writer of the epistle, but as his beloved brother and one who Paul viewed somewhat as a son in the faith. Now, Paul being an apostle, he doesn't state it in this introduction, he stood out among not only the churches to whom he ministered, but he also stood out from Timothy. Here you have Timothy, a young man compared to Paul, a son of Paul's in the faith, and then you have Paul the apostle. And so Paul includes Timothy in this manner, and Paul identifies both with Timothy and the church at Philippi by referring to himself as a servant, and Timothy a servant. Here's my point. As you look at this point, this particular opening of Paul to the church at Philippi, you begin to understand that though Paul is an apostle, though Paul has been greatly and will continue to be used by God in establishing the foundation of the church, which is Christ, and explaining and expounding upon the truth of who Christ is, we see that rather than saying, oh, Paul, I'm an apostle, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Timothy was not an apostle, though he was an elder. Paul was not an elder. He was not a bishop, but he was an apostle and an evangelist. But Timothy is, is an elder. He's a bishop, a pastor of a local church. And yet you find that within the church at Philippi, surely there were elders. Surely, as he says, bishops. Surely there were deacons, as he says in this verse. But yet, he doesn't say there were apostles within the congregation. He says some bishops, some deacons, and he addresses them as such. Now notice what Paul is doing here. Paul is connecting with the audience whom he writes. And he's saying, Paul and Timothy, he's identifying with Timothy as a fellow servant, younger in the faith, but yet a fellow servant of the Lord and pastor, elder, bishop. But then he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Now, while there may not have been any apostles within the church at Philippi, every one of the believers within the church at Philippi were what? Servants. They were saints and they were servants. And Paul identifies with them personally here, saying, I, as you, am a servant. We have the same Lord. We have the same master. You have to understand that. We have the same command. We have the same mandate. We're in the same mission. We are in the same purpose together. And so Paul immediately identifies with them. And this is important even when we move on to the next statement he makes. Notice the recipients of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. It's not So all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Matthew Henry commented, he, Paul, 
mentions the church before the ministers because the ministers are for the church, for their edification and their benefit, not the churches for the ministers, for their dignity, dominion, and wealth. That's an important statement. In other words, the church as a body of Christ was not established for the sake of its leaders, but the leaders were provided for the sake and well-being of the church. For the church or its leaders to have such an unbiblical view of leadership that the church exists for leadership is for the church to inevitably invite and experience problems within that local body. When men exalt men, problems will ensue. And Paul makes it clear in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, this is not about exalting any man other than Jesus Christ. He is the one exalted by God the Father. He is the one we are to exalt. We are to acknowledge who he is. And so Paul here states, we are servants like you and unto to all the saints, notice first, in Christ Jesus, which are with the bishops and deacons. Now the question to be asked is simply this, were the bishops and deacons saints? Of course, they're included among the body, are they not? But yet he separates them last, lastly as bishops and deacons, not because he's giving them exceptional honor, but because he's saying, I'm writing to the entirety of the body, including the bishops and the deacons. But he does separate them and identify them separately, but notice the order in which he, he lists them. They are the leadership, yes, but they are not more important than the body to whom he writes. There's a body. So, by the way, and it, it's become very common within Americanized Christianity, if I can use that term, I'll use that loosely, but Americanized, quote-unquote, Christianity, that elders, bishops, leadership take on this unbiblical role as that they have some exalted position and they are lording over the flock of God, which Scripture speaks against. I've said to you many times, I believe it's fitting to say this again to you. The only authority that I possess is Scripture as your pastor. And what that means is this. You don't have to do anything I say, nor are you obligated to do anything I say, nor does God require or demand you to do anything I say if it's not coming directly from Scripture. And yet so many today tend to have this mentality that either I'm the pastor or he's the pastor. I had someone just the other day mention to me. I said, oh, I would never, I would never uh, rise up against the authority of the pastor. I said, whoa, wait a minute. I said, the only authority a pastor has is the word of God, and that's it. Period. And look, there's great liberty in me saying that. I love people to say that. So the point is, don't look to me, look to Scripture. I don't have the answers, but Scripture does. And I'll give them to you from Scripture, and if you don't follow Scripture, that's on you. But that's what we are to follow. We are disciples of, not Truman, we are disciples of Christ. You're not disciples of the pastor, you're disciples of the great shepherd. You're sheep of the great shepherd. You're not even my sheep. You're his sheep. And I'm one of those sheep. And so we have a shepherd which we are to follow. Paul had a special relationship to the church at Philippi. You may or may not remember this, but years ago, literally, when we went our study through the book of Acts, we, I brought this up to you and explained this to you as we went through the book of Acts explains that Philippi was a city of Macedonia in Acts 16, 11-12. And keep your finger there and look at the screens with me. Therefore, losing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we went, we were in that city abiding certain days. Now, 
there's something important. If you want to turn to Acts 16, turn there with me for just a moment, because I want to read an additional passage that we don't have included in, in our, we'll be posted for you this morning. So look at Acts chapter 16, and I want you to notice here with me what's happening. In Acts chapter 16, in verse 6, now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Now this is Acts 16. We just read from Acts 16, verse 11 and 12. This is verse 6, just previous. Notice what's happening here. Paul is on his missionary journey, of course, as it's been dubbed, and he has a desire greatly to go into Asia. Asia means Asia Minor, okay? It's in the same region of Galatia and such. And so he has a desire to go into Asia Minor, and he wants to stay and preach in Asia Minor. But what is what did he say? The Holy Spirit forbade him. God would not let him go. And there's a reason he would not let them go. Now look at Acts 16, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia. Where is Philippi? It's the chief city of Macedonia. And notice what he says. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. So here Paul is with his desire to preach in Asia Minor, and God says, no, you're going over to Macedonia. And God calls Paul through this vision to go to Macedonia, and so Paul goes to Macedonia. Now Philippi is the chief city of Macedonia. I would venture to say that Paul went to Philippi. And here Paul ministers to him, and this is a, notice how this is unique. Paul desires to preach elsewhere, and God directly sends him to Macedonia. And again, which Philippi is the chief city in this, our colony within this, this area, this region. And so we see that that obviously gives Paul a unique connection, a unique relationship that he doesn't have with some of the other churches. And you, kind of, you somewhat see that coming out in this letter as well. Paul's epistle to the Philippians is one of four of what is known as the prison epistles. And the four prison epistles include, as we just finished our study, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the epistle to Philemon. And these, of course, are epistles which Paul wrote while he was in prison, as indicated by their given title, prison epistles. But again, notice, in verse 1, when Paul identifies that this is important, this is a prison epistle, and yet Paul does not say a, 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 bond or a, a servant in prison or a, a, an apostle in prison for the sake of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say these things. He says servants. Servants. Paul and Timothy, servants of the Lord, servants of God. And so, servants of Jesus Christ. So again, he's making an identification with this people who he writes to. He has a very close affiliation with Now, Paul had a very dear relationship with the church in Ephesus as well, and its elders. If you recall with me, we saw a, 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 a few weeks back where uh, the elders at, at Ephesus, when Paul met with them, he says, this is the last time you will see my face, and they wept over him, and they prayed, and they had a tremendous bond with Paul. But this bond here is unique as well, in that again, God was directly Forbidden, or Paul was directly forbidden where he wanted to go, and God directly sent him to Macedonia. And so this is a product of Paul's submission to the Lord, God working through him to establish his church in Macedonia, the church of Philippi. Within this epistle to the church of Philippi, Paul addresses a broad range of matters, and examples of such matters include, not limited to, 
his prayer for the believers at Philippi, his desire to continue in his ministry despite his awareness that the time of his death was approaching, his preparation for death, knowing it was coming, his warning to the believers at Philippi, and his hymn to Christ, again referred to as the Carmen Christi in chapter 2 and much more. So let's look at the theme of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Let's consider this as well. Philippians chapter 1, 9 through 11. Let's read these verses. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now notice verse 10. That ye may approve things that are excellent. That ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Notice again, even in these few verses, we again see the overall theme represented of all scripture. Notice what he says here. Your law may abound, yet more and more knowledge and all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. How do the fruits of righteousness even come into being? By salvation in Jesus Christ, through God's redemption. Then he goes on to say, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Here you find Jesus, the primary person, this redemption and its product, which is fruits of righteousness, unto what? God's glory. Now, seven years ago, we began our study of Paul's epistle to the, to the Romans. And since then, we have continued to study Paul's epistles as they are canonically given to us in Scripture, meaning this. Not that they are chronological in order, but canonically in order, as the canon of Scripture has been provided to us. Again, meaning we study John, then we went to Acts, and then we well, Paul's epistles. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and now Philippians. And this leads us to our study of Philippians this morning. And within these studies, throughout these past many years, I've provided you the overall theme of each of these epistles. Let's review them in light of the theme of Philippians. The theme of Romans is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we find that to be true in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ or of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. When you read through Romans and study through Romans, you'll continue to see from that point forward that Paul is explaining the power of the gospel. In fact, in the book of Acts, you'll find the gospel is proclaimed. It's a transitional book. The church is birthed. God is beginning to work through the church, through his people, in a way that's never been done before. And then the gospel is being proclaimed. Persecution comes. The gospel is spread. When you come to Romans, it's while well, Acts is the gospel proclaimed, Romans is the gospel explained. Paul is now explaining this gospel, explaining the power of this gospel, how men are dead and that they are in bondage to sin and there's nothing they can do to help themselves, Jew and Gentile alike. And then God justifies through his provision of Christ, Romans chapter 3, 24, 25. And then he goes on to talk about God's deliverance from the power of sin, uh, though we have incurred the presence of sin, verse chapter 7, we are not under the judgment and punishment of sin, chapter 8, and on and on it goes. The theme of 1 Corinthians is sanctification in Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, and 3. And by the way, it's a letter of rebuke, as you recall. The whole letter Paul's rebuking, rebuking, rebuking the Corinthian church. They are... They are uh, carnal in their actions. They are spiritually immature. Babes in Christ, chapter 3, tells us they should be eating meat and they're drinking milk because Paul cannot give them anything other than the milk of the word because they cannot stomach it as believers. 
1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, call them the saints. With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, though this letter is rebuking, Paul gets right into it. We find in the first verses, Paul addresses them as the church. They are still sanctified in Jesus Christ and called to be saints. And their life, therein lies the issue. They were sanctified in Christ positionally. They are just as holy as any other churches, but their lives are not demonstrating this. And Paul is rebuking them and saying, you are sanctified, but you are called to be saints. So live in the truth of this calling. The theme of 2 Corinthians is the comfort of God in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, 3, 5. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Who comforteth us in all tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounded by Christ. Now this is an interesting statement, because in his second letter, we understand that Paul makes it very clear that the church, there were many within that church that had repented with godly sorrow, and sorrow that came from God. They received the rebuke, they received the instruction, and they submitted themselves to the Lord. And the reason the first letter is rebuked and the second is comfort, though Paul still has to deal with issues within the church nonetheless, the reason the first is rebuked and the second is comfort is because now, notice, may God, the God of all comfort, comfort you, and that we might comfort others in all tribulation and all suffering. Why would Paul say such a thing? Because now they are submitting themselves to the Lord, and they are now identifying in the sufferings of Christ, as was Paul. And so there was a tremendous need for this comfort to be present. The theme of Galatians is the sufficiency of the gospel or the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1, 3 through 8. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins and he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God our heart and our Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let it be accursed. Here you find throughout the entire letter, Paul is saying it's not of works, it's not of the law. This salvation, this redemption is faith, by faith in Christ, the faith of Christ, which is always faith in Christ. And Paul makes that very clear. He's saying, why are you removed from him that called you unto this gospel, unto another gospel, which is really not another gospel at all. It's a perversion of the gospel. He's saying Jesus is all sufficient. And as I've declared to you many times through our study of Galatians specifically, either Jesus Christ is all sufficient or he is not sufficient at all. And he is all sufficient. Then the theme of the book of Ephesians, you should know this, is God's provision in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 2 through 6. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And so now we come to Philippians. And the overall theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is the excellency of the gospel, or the excellency of Jesus Christ. 
Philippians 1, 9 through 11, let's read this again. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, where, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Paul's desire for the Philippians to approve things that are excellent, as expressed in verse 10 of chapter 1 of the Philippians, sets the foundation for Paul's teaching within this epistle. The verb prove means to examine or to test. And the noun excellent in this passage means to be worth more than. And the use of the word has implication that something is of considerable, considerable value, having certain distinctive characteristics. So the implication of Paul's statement, approve things that are excellent, is to regard something as genuine or worthy based on testing or on its being or on it being proven. So Paul says approve, examine, test. That which is excellent, that which is more valuable, worth more, that which is distinctive in its characteristic. In other words, something that is unique, something that is not common, something that is not normal as we would view normal to be. So Paul is desiring that the Philippian believers recognize and regard the things which are proven to be excellent, things that are proven to be of considerable value, distinctive, or we could use the word superior. So we could say the superiority of the gospel and the superiority of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this excellency as well in the epistle of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7, Paul says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light and knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but we have this treasure in our vessels. Christ is in you, that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. And again, it's saying the excellency of the power, the superiority of the power, the distinctive characteristics of this power may be of God and not of you. As Paul expressed in both 2 Corinthians and in his epistle to the Philippians, Jesus Christ and his gospel are excellent. It's unique, distinctive. Let, let me say it to you like this, or ask this question. Isn't the gospel unlike anything else that exists? Is there any other message? Is there any other mandate? Is there any other word that has the power to do what the gospel does? No. But it's not the Christ of the gospel distinctively different. Doesn't he have distinct characteristics? Isn't he like none other? And again, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 help explain this further. He's the only one who is eternal, who came and took on flesh, who humbled himself to flesh, who died substitutionarily, sacrificially, and did so not because he was forced to, but willingly in submission to the Father. And now is exalted above all and given a name which is above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord alone unto the glory of God the Father. 
That's distinctive. There is none other like him. And so when I say Christ is excellent, we're not saying that as though someone's, oh, you did an excellent job. No, we're saying he alone is this. He is superior. And the gospel is superior. And distinctively different than any other thing or any other one. Jesus Christ is distinctive and characteristic. And again, in chapter 2, 5 through 11, we see this. Let's read it again. Let this mind be in you, Paul writes, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given, given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I cannot help but read this and see Jesus to be absolutely distinctive and characteristic, distinctive in submission, distinctive in holiness, distinctive as the Son of God, God in the flesh, distinctive in his love, distinctive in his mercy, distinctive in his grace. He's distinctive. There's no other as he is. He is set apart. We further see these excellent, distinctive, and superior themes throughout this epistle. It's not based just on one verse or just one statement, but this is consistent throughout the letter. In chapter 1, 12 through 18, we see the excellency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, 19 through 30, we see the excellency of salvation in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, 1 through 13, we see the excellency of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, 14 through 18, we see the excellency of the fellowship or of following Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, 19 through 30, we see the excellency of fellowship through Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, 1 through 16, we see the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, 17 through 21, we see the excellency of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, 1 through 7, the excellency of the peace of God through Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, 8 through 14, the excellency of the contentment that is found alone in Jesus Christ. And in chapter 4, 15 through 23, the excellency of God's provision in Jesus Christ. Paul is emphasizing the excellency of the gospel and more importantly, the excellency of Jesus Christ of this gospel. Let's turn to a few verses here just to see them in just for just a moment. If you look, for instance, in chapter 2, we won't read this, we already have, but specifically verses 5 through 11, so you see the excellency of Jesus Christ that we've already explained. You see, again, the Carmen Christi, as it's referred, the hymn to Christ. We've dealt with that already. Then you see the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ in chapter 3. Just to point out a few of these, look at chapter 3, and if you look, for instance, in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yet doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them the dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Do you not see the excellency of the knowledge 
Paul again is saying, now the word excellence is only used twice in this entire epistle. But yet he's saying here, here's the excellency of knowing Christ. His, the knowledge of Christ supersedes all other things. The knowledge of Christ is superior to all other things because he is superior to all other things. We also see the excellency of contentment in Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, we'll bear with me for just a moment. And this, of course, is in verses 8 through 14. But we'll pick it up just in verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound in everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Notice Paul says here, I have learned to be content through Christ. And that is the emphasis of these verses. I've told you before, it would not be a bad idea to underscore that in that order. I have learned to be content through Christ, because that's what Paul is saying here. And he's saying there is an excellency of the contentment that's in Jesus Christ. I know what it is to suffer, Paul says. I know what it is to be comfortable or comforted. I know what it is to abound in provision. I know what it is to lack in provision. But regardless of all of that, the contentment that is in Christ is superior to all things. In other words, Paul is saying this. I would rather have the contentment that comes through Jesus alone than to have an abundance all the time. So he's saying, here it is excellent. This is an excellent provision of God. We can approve, we can testify by examination and experience, as Paul commands the church of Philippi to do, that Jesus Christ is excellent. He is distinctively different. He is distinctively superior in comparison to all other things. Nothing can compare to what it is to know, and nothing can compare to what it is to experience the uniqueness of salvation in Jesus Christ. Following Jesus Christ. Fellowship with Jesus Christ. Hope because of Jesus Christ. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. Contentment in all things because of Jesus Christ. And God's provision in and through Jesus Christ. Let me just conclude with this one simple statement. Jesus is exalted above all. He is excellent. And we're going to see this unfold throughout this study. Let's stand in prayer.